This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair uses a molecule called hypochlorous acid, which mimics our natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing. We've been loving Active Skin Repair for all the cuts and scrapes that show up in the active toddler life. Sage loves that there's both the spray version, but also a cream version. He likes to get to choose which one he's going to do. He calls it the magic cream. And it's been so great for taking care of Mila's neck rash now that she's full on teething. Can we get a minute for a teething three and a half month old? What in the world? Active Skin Repair has thousands of five-star reviews and the ingredients so safe and clean, they can be used from the youngest member of the family to the oldest. Keeping it simple with one soothing solution for all your family's skin health needs. Visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and to get 20% off your order, use code VILLAGE. That's www.activeskinrepair.com, code VILLAGE, for 20% off your order. You're listening to Voices of Your Village, and on this episode, I got to have a conversation that I personally have been wanting to have for a long time. I got to hang out with Dr. Devorah Heitner and chat about growing up in public, her latest book. I... I think it's huge because we are living in this world as parents that we didn't grow up in when it comes to screens and navigating privacy and reputation with kids and teens. Like if a teen posts this photo, what does that mean for them now or in the long term that people are losing their jobs over tweets or things that show up online? And so this is a conversation I personally have been very curious about. Like, what does it look like to parent in this world to support kids with these tools that they need to thrive when it wasn't something we experienced when we were younger? Her book, Growing Up in Public, is a phenomenal resource for this. And it's one of those things where, for myself, I like to feel prepared and look at, like, how am I? setting kids up for success down the road. So I personally am really interested in diving into things like this, even though I don't have a teenager right now, I want to look at how am I sharing about my tiny humans and what am I doing to serve or support them in that way? And really examining my role in this now to then look at how do I set them up for success down the road as well. You can snag her book, Growing Up in Public, wherever books are sold, and I, 10 out of 10, would recommend. All right, folks, let's dive in. Hey there, I'm Alyssa Blass Campbell. I'm a mom with a master's degree in early childhood education and co-creator of the Collaborative Emotion Processing Method. I'm here to walk alongside you through the messy, vulnerable parts of being humans raising other humans with deep thoughts and actionable tips. Let's dive in together. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Voices of Your Village. Today, I get to hang out with Dr. Devora Heitner. She's the author of ScreenWise, Helping Kids Thrive and Survive in Their Digital World. And her latest book out September 12th is Growing Up 
in public. It's about navigating privacy and reputation with kids and teens. I'm so excited to get to chat with Dr. Heitner about this today. I personally have so many questions. Dr. Heitner's work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and CNN Opinion. She's delighted to be raising her own teenager. You can follow her on Instagram at Devorah Heitner, PhD, and on Substack at devorahheitner.substack.com. Hello, Devorah. How are you? Hi. I'm Hello. good. Thanks. How are you? I'm doing pretty well here. Yeah. You know, parenting a toddler and growing another human and doing all the things, but so trucking. much energy. <laughs> so much energy so much energy it's so true uh I like you said in the intro I'm so jazzed to chat about this it's something that I personally have so many questions about both as a parent and as a human with a social platform and I when when we started Seed it was really a personal brand and it just started with me after our research ended just sharing, sharing about the research, sharing what we learned, sharing about the method and what it looked like in my real life as a teacher, as a human. And it was really easy for me to share. Like it felt really natural. And even through pregnancy, it felt really natural for me to keep sharing. And then I had Sage, my little guy. And all of a sudden I like felt myself go really inward where I was like, oh, this isn't just me anymore. And I wish I had you two years ago and I'm excited to have you now because I want to pick your brain on all of this and what it looks like to lay a foundation with the online world and our tiny humans. And uh, yeah, so thank you for yeah, being Yeah, and what here. it's like for them, like what, what yeah. it's like for Sage, you know, when Sage realizes mom has this world outside of our family and outside of our home, yeah. that's a bigger world. And people know about us and our family. And what does that mean? And I think most kids, if their parents are on social media, even if your parent isn't out there, you know, as an entrepreneur or as a thought leader in a space with like a bigger social media, but any parent on Facebook or Instagram, their kids are going to at some point realize like, oh my gosh, mom or dad is known to people. And therefore I maybe known to people that are not people that I know. Yeah. And that's exactly it. Like whether it's just like, oh yeah, Aunt Mary sees these things about you and you've maybe met her once in your life and don't really know her, but she knows all these things about you or feels like she does. Or we go to the farmer's market and someone stops us and is like, are you Alyssa from Seed and So? Is this Sage? Like, and I'm like, oh, okay. Like this is a thing I have to think about. In, in a whole different way. And yeah, for him, like, what is that like? What will that be like? Um, so thanks. Thanks for being here as my personal go-to for all these things now, Devorah. So Happy grateful. To help. <laughs> <laughs> Although you can ask my 14-year-old who keeps a very low profile online, you know, what it's like for him too, because I think as kids get older, they have more to say. Yeah. And if you look at my Instagram, you'd be like, wait, she has a kid because I don't share. Mm -hmm. And my kid knows I've been writing a book about privacy and reputation and social media. So I would be really, you know, and he, so, and that I've been, you know, saying that parents should be asking permission before they share their kids. So I really can't share. I haven't shared images on social of him for years. And so there's this kind of lack though. I mean, honestly, it, yeah. it's sometimes a bummer for me. There's times where I'm like, you just got your black belt and I got this great picture or yeah. you're taller than me now. That would be really fun to show a photo <laughs> of. Yeah. So, well, and it just like resist. feels, I, I feel like 
the parenting world on Instagram can become this highlight reel, right? Where we're just like sharing all these like, oh, here's what you quote should do in this moment, or here's how you can respond to your kid. But what feels more authentic and genuine for me is like, yeah, I had a really hard morning, like trying to get out the door and this is what it looked like. But that involves sharing parts of Sage's journey too, right? And like uh, the challenges that we had getting out the door, the reality of who he is and how his nervous system works versus how my nervous system works and the mismatches that can happen. And it, just things like that, that I think are like, that's the, it's the realness of doing this. And I'm so cautious about the highlight reel and only the like, I don't know, I guess like ideals, if you will, versus the realities. And it feels really easy for me to share about the realities but it involves sharing him that then like now, yeah, feels uncomfortable. It's so tricky. And I I think parents can feel less alone looking at content like that and stories that other people share. But I do think we have to be careful about what we share about our kids and sometimes maybe err on the side of sharing with a smaller circle, which is hard. I mean, I get what you're trying to do is like, you know, really serve and support a larger group of people, but right. it's tricky. There are times where I think we we need to focus on, okay, what is the small circle? You know, do I have an intimate group of close friends who will hold this knowledge sure. close and not kind of mention it to my kid later if it's kind of involving them? Or in the case of, you know, parents sharing about something like a diagnosis, like maybe your kid is neurodiverse or has a learning disability or a health situation where maybe you want to share in an affinity group for people who are also dealing with that health situation right. or LD or, you know, neurodiversity, but you don't want to sh- open that up to the whole world. Is there a way to even share anonymously and get the same kind of support? Because mm-hmm. at least for me, like I have one kid, I have a weird name. I have a somewhat public life. Like it's very clearly him. Sure. I'm sharing about my sure. kid. Like there's not like <laughs> some other, you know, and when you're Devorah Heitner, you can't really hide on the internet because <laughs> like, there's not a lot of other Google search p- results under that name other than me. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think my kid likes having a different last name than I do for that reason, but it's still not, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of ways to hide. And, and I think for all of us, search really changes things and facial recognition is going to change things as well. My kid was recognized on the streets of another city when he was five at a parade we were at by someone who knew, who knew about him from seeing my pictures and didn't know him personally. Mm-hmm. And that was in the screen wise era when I was working on my last book. And so I was already talking about these issues, but I wasn't as focused on specifically privacy and sharing. Yeah. Um, although I had been saying ask permission, but my kid was so little. I was like, oh, you can ask permission when they're like seven. But he was so disconcerted by having someone know who he was that he didn't know that I realized, okay, maybe I need to think about this even sooner. Yeah. Uh, Can we chat about like, what are the fears, right? Like, what are the concerns around if somebody recognizes them that doesn't know, that doesn't know them or sharing stuff of theirs online? This is a conversation I was having with someone in my life recently where I was talking about this exact thing of like, oh, I don't know what's the right amount to share. He's two, so it does feel hard to ask permission, right? Um, and up until this point, and my friend was like, what's the big deal? Like, what does it matter if people know these things? So can we break that down? I think part of it is you have to fast forward a little to them at their most self-conscious. So thinking about their life course, think about them as a 12 or 13 or 14 year old who's more self-conscious and think about 
nobody's not going to hire you for a job because you had a meltdown at the mall when you were two, but you might not want people to know about it because it just feels personal and private. And especially, and I know you wouldn't do this, but I think sometimes we see parents actually photographing or videotaping their kids when they're struggling to self-regulate. And I think that's that's particularly a a problem because that's also distancing in the moment. So rather than being connected and there's all kinds of reasons why people do it. I mean, the sort of cruel reason would be like, reason my kid is crying and you're actually like making fun of your kid for not being self-regulated. Yeah. Um, I think that's just cruel. Obviously, I don't mm-hmm. think any of it's us want to do that. So that's like over here on the extreme. I think people do it sometimes because they don't know what to do. And a lot of us reflexively reach for our cameras and and document things in, in our world and our families in life because we just don't know what to do. And the camera gives us a little emotional distance. Um, but I, th- I think there are a lot of reasons not to, not to do that. And, and that is profoundly disruptive to what kids need in those moments. Yeah. So describing it later, you know, might, might feel less like a breach of trust and a breach of the relationship. I still think again, that we need to be careful because think about, again, your 13 year old reading that later, like from your point of view, will you wish you kept it in your diary or talk to your close friends in your parenting group? Or talk to your sibling who has older kids who will counsel you through or what who or your parenting coach or your therapist versus sharing in a public way where your kids' friends can later read it, you know. Um, and these and these include things like parents posting about things like bedwetting or you know, school anxiety sure. or you know, envy and jealousy when a new sibling is born, which are all real things and shouldn't be like shameful in any way, but it's still very personal. And I'm not sure I would want to read an account of, you know, I was seven when my sister was born. So I wasn't expecting a sibling. I'd always been told I was an only child. And then there was my sibling. And I know that there were behavior issues because my mother later told me like, we well, we went to family therapy and it was, you know, sure. the whole thing. I don't think I would have wanted to read about that at nine or 10 on my mother's social media and hear her perspective on that. Like, I feel like as, as parents, we need to keep some things in our thought bubble or share with sure. our people and, and not have that get found by kids. So I just think it's important to realize that our kids will someday see this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's the lens for me is like, if he reads this one day, what will it mean for him, for our relationship to me? Uh, And for me, it's interesting, like the idea of like personal privacy, I think is so personal, like what is personal, what is private, what isn't. And that's the line that I find hard. Like I think a lot of work around feelings, there's a lot of shame in a lot of cultures around feelings. I think because we haven't had a space to talk about them, to normalize them, to say, yeah, it makes total sense to feel jealous of a baby that's getting a lot of attention when that wasn't the case, right? To grieve the loss of the family life that you had before to make space for what is. And so for me, there's that balance of like, how much are we perpetuating shame around emotions and experiences by keeping it all private? And I think of like my experience with miscarriage, I had two miscarriages before Sage, and it was so comforting for me to have read other people's miscarriage journeys publicly to then when it was occurring for me, no, like, all right, I'm not broken. There's nothing wrong with me. And this is really common. And like that, the normalization of the hard experience was really helpful for me. And that's a really personal thing to share, you know? And so 
that's where I have like, I get hung up in that space. Yeah. I mean, that's a really good example. I mean, I also lost a pregnancy before my son was born. And I think what happens in that situation is so many times is your women, friends and family members share all their losses with you. And you had no idea, you know, like so many people in my life opened up to me about having had miscarriages. And I I just had no idea that it was so around me. And I think Another example is the ways kids are now sharing about mental health. And I think it, we, you know, I was in therapy as a teenager and no one even had to tell me their stigma. Don't share. Like my parents never even said, don't tell anyone you're in therapy. I just absorbed it from the culture. Totally. This is like, you know, early 1990s and I didn't say anything or I would even lie and say I was going places I wasn't going when I was going to therapy. And now kids openly disclose that they're in therapy and it's destigmatized in some communities. I'm not going to say that's a universal, but I think that there are communities more than there were 20, 30 years ago where you could say, oh, I got to go. I have therapy. Um, Mm -hmm. Or even like my therapist just gave me this great advice, like, here, let me share it with you, you know, like that kind of thing. And what's great is I still think it's, it's powerful and important for kids to know they have a choice. You're, you're, it's totally okay to be in therapy and choose to keep that private. That's right. fine. But if you do want to share the fact that more people are sharing about it, destigmatizes it and makes it even seem like an option. Like maybe your friend would be like, oh, wait, therapy, like, tell me more. You know, I'd yeah. like to know about that. That sounds like a really good resource. Um, and I think parents are nervous that kids are sharing things like that or mental health or neurodiversity or other, you know, categories of experience that we didn't talk about, um, experiences mm-hmm. of, you know, racial injustice and harm, experiences of surviving, you know, sexual assault or harassment. Kids are opening up about all these things online, in their social media, on TikTok, on Discord, on Instagram. And I think for a lot of parents, they're like, whoa, whoa, that's really dangerous. I would rather see kids open up about it themselves. And again, it's not that I don't want to see parents whose kids are going through, like we know so many teenagers are experiencing mental health issues. And clearly that's a crisis for the whole family. The parents need support too. I'm not saying suffer alone. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying if your kid, for example, is super anxious and refusing school, but they're in eighth or ninth grade, like like, for example, you can't share that in your social media publicly without other people knowing, and maybe they're not ready for that, or that's not actually even going to help their recovery to have people know that. Totally. Right. Maybe it's better for them to be able to have another story that they want to tell that's and and to tell only their most trusted circle. And so it's one thing if they want to open up about it, but I think if you want to be open about it, I think you need to find a space that's not your public social media. And again, there may be a discord you can join. It may not be, it may, it could be an online group, but it could be an online parenting group where it's shared and it's more locked down versus sharing in this, the open space where there are always people you forget about too on social. I mean, I think it's especially true for someone like you as a bigger presence, but I think for any of us, like you're thinking about, oh, my parents will see this. And I started sharing my pictures of our son just with the grandparents. Cause I realized like, that's who I was really posting on Facebook for. It wasn't my colleagues that I used to work with at the various colleges I taught at before I started my business, you know, doing this. Yeah. Like it wasn't, you know, it wasn't my friends from my doctoral program that needed to see pictures of my kids. It was like, right. or my friends from summer camp back in the day. It was like, there's a small number of people who have an endless appetite for pictures of my kid. And those are like the three living grandparents. <laughs> sure. And I was like, I could just text them or make a calendar every year, which we still do, even though he's 14, yeah. like we still make a yearly calendar. And those are the people for whom like, any number of pictures is is wonderful. Everyone else would only really like a few and totally. maybe none at all is okay. <laughs> sure. Sure. I, yeah. And like, it does make sense to me as kids get older and they have 
you know, they can participate in that conversation around what's shared and what isn't. I think what it feels hard is in the like infant toddler years where it's different in terms of communication and what consent can look like. Um, one of the things that I'm curious about, and, and I was sharing with you, like this conversation makes me think a lot of the one that I had with Jess Leahy on the addiction inoculation, where she said, yeah, it's not at like 16 when they ask can I go to this party that now you're starting this conversation? And for me, I think of the fact that like screens aren't going away. Social media isn't going away. Like this public piece isn't going away and it's only going to continue to evolve. And I like that feels the unknown of that feels scary for me, but I also don't want to like live in the dark it was so new for me as a kid, you know, like MySpace and AIM and whatever was like really happening and no one talked to us about it, or at least no one oh, talked yeah. to me I mean, about you watch, it. Um, Pen 13. Yes. It sounds exactly. like the kid, like those protagonists are in your, and I taught actually like my first college students were also in the AIM kind of yeah. generation. Like when I was right out of grad school, I was teaching young people who grew up with MySpace and it was really eye-opening for me because I was just a little bit older and their experience was so different. And they yeah. had experienced also like Forum Spring, which was an app that a lot of kids used to be really mean to each other. So they okay. were very hip to the challenges. And, and I think too, like one of the things we're, we're doing when we ask our kids permission before we share, you know, whether that's starting at five or starting at seven or whenever they sort of become aware of our sharing, I do think before a certain age, it just has to be our discernment. Mm -hmm. But when we start asking, we're modeling for them that this is what they should do with their peers. Right. And that's huge. That yeah. they shouldn't be taking videos of their peers and putting them on YouTube, for example, without permission. Sure. That makes total sense. And I love that as a, as a model. And so that's what I was thinking about is like, yeah, how do I model this? How do I set up a relationship? I, I love this part of your work so much that you're so focused on the like empathy and mentoring versus monitoring. And I, as a human, just in general, we have a team of 10 at Seed and I, nothing um, fires me up about micromanaging. Like it doesn't bring me any joy. It's not, I'm, I hire people to do things that I, that they're better at than I am so that I don't have to do it and think about it. Like happy to collaborate in any way that I can, but like micromanaging brings me no joy and same in parenting. Like it, it's not what I'm here to do. And so I think of that with the like monitoring. I don't want to micromanage devices. I don't want to be like checking up on. I also grew up, I think uh, my husband and I were just talking about this because we're very different upbringings. And I'm one of five kids in a low income community that was like really farm town, rural, really like a village mindset. And I would leave the house and be gone for hours and maybe call my parents from Allie Ty's house and be like, Hey, I'm going to stay for dinner with the ties. And then I'll be home later. Like, but it was, there wasn't a lot of monitoring of me. There was like a trust that we had. Um, and we also didn't have, there was no tracking of my whereabouts. Um, caller ID came on the scene later and we didn't have it at my house. So even that, like I call from anywhere. Right. And I think about that of like, oh, I don't know what this looks like down the road. You know, I don't know what this looks like with Sage. And I don't want to be like, where is he? Did you get there? Are you safe? Like how, how like th that's not how I operate as a human. 
And I don't know what that looks like in the social world of like, what's happening? What's happening in DMs? What's happening on Snapchat? Or yeah, and I think because is. we can look, a lot of parents feel like we should, yeah. you know, because like we can, we can read their texts and we can see their location and we can track them on Find My Phone or we can get them even on like Life360, which is kind of like putting an ankle bracelet on a family member, yeah. I think. But you know, I know adults who like it. And I, I think we do live in a world where knowing each other's whereabouts and being able to contact one another feels reassuring. But I think we are so used to it that it's like we're a little dependent on it. And then if somebody's phone dies and we can't reach them, even if they're sort of fine and where they're supposed to be or whatever, it just makes us so anxious. Mm -hmm. So I do think as the technology has become more able to track us and track our locations and all of that, it's made it really hard. And I think if we're reading our kids' texts, we're going to relive middle school in ways that maybe, at least for me, like I had such a rough time in middle school myself. Like I feel like I have enough sort of PTSD from it. I don't sure. need to relive my kid's experience. What I want to be is be available presence for him to talk about. And like sometimes advise, like there are times where I'm like, hey, I think, you know, you might be about to like call someone again that you couldn't reach. And I'm going to strongly suggest you don't keep trying. Like, I'm like, I really am going to push you to think about like, what is this person maybe doing? But also if they do keep texting and texting their friend, their friend might just push back and give feedback. So it doesn't oh always my. have to be you, the parent that's preventing your kid from, I think, being annoying. I think when it's something like your kid wants to text someone else in the middle of the night and it's going to be disruptive for that other kid or their family, like if you can intervene, obviously I think we would all want to. But again, maybe it's the friend that wakes your kid up and your kid is like, oh, I'm going to turn my phone off at night or I'm going to figure out how to deal with this problem. So, you know, parents, I think are very important in this role. I don't suggest giving kids, you know, something as powerful as a smartphone and just walking away and hoping for the best. Mm-hmm. But I also don't think we want to kind of overreach into all of this tracking. And I think it undermines kids' abilities to problem solve as well and figure out like, what am I going to do? Like, I think of all the times where I was kind of like, literally like without a dime, <laughs> couldn't call home totally, and needed something. And I was like, oh, I, I was comfortable like asking a shop owner or the lady behind the desk at the library, like I'm stranded, may I use the phone? Yeah. And kids may be like less comfortable doing that now, but it's great to know like who are the friendly strangers you can ask for help. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Being back to work after maternity leave has been so good and frankly, so hard. I love what I do and I missed collaborating with my team while I was out and it's been a tough transition. The combination of a packed schedule and still being the milk machine for Mila Bean, it's hard to juggle everything. I feel so grateful for my weekly therapy hour. Sometimes I'm just holding so much and I need a safe space to let it out and get it off my chest. I've noticed that when I don't release it, it comes out anyway, but usually in ways that aren't aligned with how I want to show up in the world. BetterHelp is such a convenient, flexible option for parents who just can't take the travel time to get to an in-person therapy visit. It's entirely online. You can show up in your jammies, always a win in my book, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you're on your way to feeling heard. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash voices today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash voices. Hormone Harmony is an all-in-one hormonal balancing solution for women of all ages. 
Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. And that means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormone changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. Hormone Harmony is perfect for those horrible menopause symptoms that put your life on hold, like hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all these things. And the biggest benefit? Feeling like yourself again. That's what women mention over and over in their reviews. And there are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code VILLAGE at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code VILLAGE for 15% off today. I don't know about you, but when I scroll through Instagram or I'm tuning into podcasts and diving into parenting resources, resources for myself as a teacher, I can feel overwhelmed. Like, where do I start? I need a guide for what this looks like in practice. And I don't want something that's one size fits all because every child is different, right? And like, if you have multiple children, if you're a teacher, you know that it's not one size fits all. Or if you have seen what works for your sister-in-law or your best friend or your neighbor, and you're like, oh my gosh, my child does not respond to that. That is how I felt. And then we created the collaborative emotion processing method. It is a guide for building emotional intelligence. And y'all, there are five components of the SET method. One is about how to respond to the kids and what it looks like to have adult-child interactions. The other four are about us, because I don't know about you, but I did not grow up getting these tools. I did not grow up with them. I didn't grow up in this household where I was taught tools for self-awareness and self-regulation and how to do emotion processing work. And now, as a parent and as a teacher, I'm supposed to teach those skills to a tiny human, but we can't teach what we don't know. And so my first book, Tiny Humans, Big Emotions, is here to support you. You can head to www.seedandso.org slash book and snag Tiny Humans, Big Emotions today. This is a game changer. It's going to build these skills with you, for you, so that you can do this work alongside building these skills for your tiny humans so that they can grow up with a skill set for self-awareness, for regulation, for empathy, for social skills, for intrinsic motivation, a skill set of emotional intelligence so that they can navigate all the things that come their way in life. Snag tiny humans, big emotions, at seedandso.org slash book. Yeah, I dig that so much. And that's, you hit the nail on the head of like, yeah, I don't want to read their texts. And also I don't want to hand them a smartphone and be like, good luck. And so like, what is that balance of like, how do I talk about it? For us, one of the things we have chatted about is like, what's our modeling with our phones? Like, what do we do with it? How do we engage? If I have an online presence and 
my tiny human might read how I respond to somebody else, how I engage with other humans on the internet. What do I want to model for them there? Like, what do I want them to see? Or right now I have nieces and nephews who are my oldest nephew's 14. And so he could very easily follow me on Instagram and see how do I engage with people? What do I share? How do I talk to and about other humans on the internet? And so for me, that like modeling piece comes up there of like, what does that look like? What am I modeling? Uh, and then, hundred percent, you know, yeah. and I think this is, I mean, there's so many reasons to walk away from dumpster fires on the internet, but for me, like an additional reason would be like, I'm theoretically a role model for being civil discourse on the internet. Mm -hmm. So if like people are getting into it about the school board, maybe this is not where I need to hang out, you know, or if people, and, and again, not that I can't engage civically or that I can't have opinions. Like I don't edit myself on the internet to the point where I can't have opinions or I can't, you know, stick up for things that I believe in. Um, but when it comes to people kind of, or even like complaining and being kvetchy, which I think a lot of us do on the internet, like I'm always kind of trying to balance that with, well, I'm trying to help people. And, and what the research shows us is we know it doesn't make us feel better. And that's ultimately what I think is the most important. Is, and what I've tried to work on with my own kid and kids that I talk with at schools is even if you radically disagree with someone, like say someone's posting in a really hateful, problematic way, you don't want to give that person your eyeballs. Even if you are tempted to go and comment on their channel, how wrong they are, they're not going to change their minds because you know, Devorah and Alyssa commented and said, you're so wrong, you know, this isn't helpful or this isn't a positive strategy. Like they're committed. So it's better to do things to raise awareness somewhere else. Or like if you're a kid, you know, to find the other young people at your school or in your community that believe what you believe and work with them to make change or support the group that's being targeted if that person is being hateful versus going on there and making the negative comment. And I think a lot of people want to kind of engage, you know, because the internet is so good at stirring up yeah. those negative emotions and like making us feel kvetchy and making us feel, you know, even out like outrage. And it doesn't make you feel better though, expressing that outrage. It just, it just fans the flames and it totally. leaves you with kind of an unresolved set of anger. I, I think what it's really good at is producing in groups and out groups and mm -hmm. helping us notice where we feel connection to certain identities and for me you know given our platform we post things that we get a lot of really strong feelings about and uh you know we posted recently post about it a bunch but we posted in it was april we did a thread collab with uh, my friend Wes, who had been on the podcast about gender identity and how you can't know someone's gender if just by looking at them. And here's how to navigate that. And there were a lot of strong feelings about that. And for us, that's where I'm like, all right, how do are we modeling what it looks like to respond to somebody who's coming here dysregulated and what I've found so powerful is being able to DM with them and use the voice feature. I'm happy to have a conversation with, I, I don't only want to talk to people who agree with me and share the same views and values that I do. I, I grew up in a community that has a, a strong 
like views on things that are different than what I hold now in a lot of ways. And there's so many humans that I love and have deep respect for. And I think there's a lot of power in being able to have conversations that are civil with humans who disagree with us. And I think it's really helpful for me to do that with a voice note where we can, you can hear my tone and regulation and we can have a little convo back and forth. And it's where I've, I agree with all of that. I do feel like it's important for kids to know though, that it's also okay for them to keep their emotional energy close and not engage. Like, and if my third grader runs into someone on Roblox that's spewing mean language, I want them to know it's okay to just bug on out. 100%. And even as an adult, if I'm just being attacked, I think it's fine for me to just bug on out. But I think if someone's ready for dialogue, that's great. I just think at the same time, it's important for kids to know that like they don't have to do the emotional labor of, you know, helping someone overcome their homophobia, their racism, et cetera, that that's not sort of your job on the internet. It's like a choice you can make if you want to engage in those ways. But I, I think we do need to talk to kids about emotional safety in those situations. And I think kids tend to, when I talk to them, be more in the side of feeling like they should kind of engage. Mm. Um, But also they need to know, I think, safe ways to upstand. Like one thing I've done a lot is helping kids reduce the scope. Like what you're talking about is these one-to-one conversations. A lot of kids are communicating early on, predominantly through group texts. So they'll go from like second, third grade, talking to people on Roblox, maybe on a Google Hangout, maybe on a classroom setting. Mm -hmm. A lot of kids are doing their first texting on classroom Google Docs. And that's true even since remote school. Like, so that's a huge kind of learning curve for kids. And then it, as they get into the sort of fifth grade, sixth grade group group text era, it's good for them to know that if somebody upsets you or undermines you or whatever, you can go directly to that person and calling them out in the group text Mm may not go very well because most people double down when they're called out in front of others. But if you reach out to them privately, that may go better. Or or you can go to the person who got targeted and express solidarity and support for them. Or you could get off the group text, but those are all options. And I think kids just need to be equipped with like, and this is what I mean by mentorship. Like if you just read the group text, you might, you know, your, your eyeballs might, you know, blur over because totally. you'll just be like, oh, hey, this is so gross or toxic, or I can't believe the sixth grade group text went there. But if you can empower your kid with like, well, you can always get out, you can always take a break. You can always blame me and say, my mom's making me get off the group text or my dad says I have to go. Um, or I'll get in trouble if the language is, you know, problematic in this text because my parents look at my phone. And again, your kid can say that whether or not you do. Yeah. And it's a good boundary for younger kids to be able to assert that, but they can also engage one-to-one with individuals who are either causing problems or that they want better understanding with. They can go to a phone call and that's something we can model. I do think one of the challenges now of raising kids in the digital age is like we're thumbing out so much of our lives in front of them and they're not learning from that. Correct. Whereas we heard our parents on the phone and we actually learned how does my mom react to a solicitation call during the dinner hour? How does my dad talk when he really needs to go, you know, and what are the clues that they use to either continue the conversation or work toward the end of a conversation? Whereas we see our kids on Zoom calls with like grandma and grandpa where they'll just walk away. Yes. That's kind of funny when they're two, but by the time they're six, it's like, well, let's let's see if we can talk about closure here. But you realize like, oh, they've never seen me get to a close in a conversation because I'm thumbing everything out in front of them. Click, click, click. They have no idea what I'm doing or how I'm saying, okay, great talking to you. Gotta go. That's such a good point. So we I hadn't need to thought teach about our that. kids some of those things. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. And I, 
I love that note of like just the social skills that happen with a conversation. I also like personally wish that somebody would have said to me growing up, even outside of social, yeah, when there's a group thing, like you can separately, here are your options. You can tap out and here's what that looks like. Or you can have a conversation individually with that person, or you can go have a conversation with the person who is targeted. I think even outside of social, that would have been a really useful thing for someone to have said, you know, of like, here's how you can handle these uncomfortable social situations. And we will, you know, support you in, in navigating that. I was, when you were talking about that, I was thinking of a part of um, Justin Baldoni's book, Boys Will Be Human, that came out last year. And he was talking about kind of like what it looks like to find that voice that allows you to stand up and say something in the moment versus what are the other options for in the moment that, yeah, not a, a lot of the times in the moment we're too dysregulated to have that conversation. Right. And so that's something we'll model a lot on Instagram of like, I would love to continue this conversation in DMS when we're both in a regulated state, I'm going to take a breather and then I'll check my DMS in a little bit. And just to show that like, you can step away. (laughs) You yeah, can step yeah. away. Another huge thing we can teach kids is, especially as they're communicating more independently, like if they have a phone or if they're using a family computer, is check in with your physiology. If you're holding that device real tight or hitting the keyboard and the face of it hard, if you're holding your breath, these are <laughs> clues that you're going into a fight or flight place and you're probably getting pretty reactive versus responsive. You're probably not adding much to this relationship or mm-hmm you know, doing something that's going to be like continuing the relationship in a positive way. So if you can walk away, take a breath or do anything to return to your body, that really helps. And I also ask kids what they can do if they're getting too mad when they game, you know, because a lot of kids get too mad when they're playing Minecraft or when they're playing Roblox or, you know, they feel a little out of control. And it's like taking a drink of water, doing a push up, anything that brings you back to your body is going to help in those moments. And it's hard to remember to do that. But I think those physiological cues are probably better indicators for a lot of us, even adults, but certainly kids versus like, oh, am I getting into reactive place? Like, I don't know if I could answer that question, but I can answer the question of, am I hitting the keyboard hard? Somebody just asked me yesterday, what do you think is really going to be the game changer for teaching self-regulation? And I said, when we stop trying to teach self-regulation and we start teaching self-awareness that you cannot regulate what you're not aware of. And so the physiological cues you're talking about is the self-awareness component of, yeah, am I fired up right now? Do I feel like I need to respond to this right now? Like I can't walk away. That for me is the sign of like, oh, you got to pump the brakes (laughs) when it's like, oh, I need to respond right now. Like whatever I'm doing, this is now occupying my brain and my fingers start going like, okay, those are now my cues of pump the brakes. But we are, I think, so focused right now, culturally on teaching skills for regulation and you can't regulate what you're not aware of. So I love that. of like, what does it look like when you're gaming? What does it feel like um, when you're in these conversations so that you do know, oh, now's the time to take a break. And what does that break look like? What? Okay. This is, this is not something that like, I even, I'm like, it's one of those things that feels like, oh, this is so far away. I don't have to think about it, but I think it's also one of those things of like you lay a foundation early or it like sneaks up on you. 
But one of the things that I feel curious about are tricky topics like sexting. And what does that look like? Does it mean how does it show up for tiny humans or larger humans, I guess, today? Yeah. And what do we do I think now? The, the minute your kids are using YouTube on their own or TikTok or any of those, and a lot of little kids are exposed to YouTube and TikTok, even if they don't personally have have the apps they're still like I saw a kid doing a dance on the playground where did that come from like a lot of the memes that are in the wider culture even in elementary school are coming from TikTok coming from YouTube so it's easy to kind of feel like oh my kid is insulated from that world but it's not likely to be that the case certainly by again by elementary school maybe before that they are and YouTube is a place where kids can run into things like pornography so it's good to talk to kids in a really simple way when they're little about hey, if you see naked people on the computer, I want you to turn it off and let me know because that's not for kids. And you probably don't want to see that anyway, but if you see it, you know, just just turn it off and let me know. Um, or X, teach kids how to X out of a YouTube video because you could be literally watching, you know, YouTube videos about pandas or something and like the suggested video. Usually the algorithm is sort of more accurate than that, but I have been surprised again and again by the algorithm and how it will take you in directions you don't expect. In terms of Things like kids communicating across, you know, sending nudes or underwear pictures or anything like that, or like what they, whatever they think of as sort of sexy or even just like naughty, like, because kids are interested in getting a reaction sometimes. And even young kids, like fifth, sixth, seventh graders will sometimes be, be like curious about what will get a big reaction from someone. And that's a whole category of like, we know we're not supposed to do it. We know we're not supposed to take pictures of our private parts and share them. We know we're not supposed to take pictures with our clothes off or with underwear, but we also drive by billboards, you know, every day where we might see people like posing in their underpants or other things. So it's like, it's a confusing boundary mm -hmm. and we know it gets a big reaction and kids can be, especially as tweens and teens kind of curious. I mean, I would say tween sending nudes is a little different than teens. Like tweens, it's often about getting that big reaction doing something sure. forbidden with teenagers. It can be more about flirting, also just gauging your attractiveness and like wanting to know that someone thinks you're cute. Sure. And that might seem like as adults, we might be like, what? But a lot of teenagers have shared with me that this is something that people do to kind of, you know, sort of test the waters to see if somebody likes them. And if you really think about it, you know, you may have done something when you were growing up and falling in love and having crushes that seemed kind of ridiculous, whether it was sending so many things, notes, Dora, so I many left things. Poems, <laughs> I left poetry in people's lockers. Oh my gosh, that's I so sweet. <laughs> did a lot of wacky things when I had crushes. And so I think we should never discount that. And what we don't want is for kids to feel shame about their bodies, about sexuality. I think it's important when our kids are little to also have boundaries around sharing nudes. Again, not because there's anything shameful about baby nudes or little kid nudes, um, but because we live in a world where unfortunately there are gross people with bad intent who could repurpose those. So I think that's a reason yeah. not to share them, but also to just talk about like, oh, maybe we'll only take pictures, you know, in these settings and not these other settings. Um, and again, without filling our kids, hopefully with like body shame or any of that, like we don't want our kids to feel bad. And with sexual, with, with sharing sexting and, and nudes and stuff, I would say to kids, there's nothing wrong with wanting to look cute, with being curious about how your body looks um, and how other people might think about that. This is just not a safe way for kids to express their sexuality. You could even say, maybe if you believe this, I would say like, it's not even a super safe way for adults to do it. Like it's especially stigmatized and illegal for kids. But even for adults, like 
ethically, I have no problem with adult sexting sure. um, or kid sexting. Like I, I don't think a mutual exchange that's not coercive is ethically a problem. Sure. I'm talking about legally you're in tricky territory in most states if you're a kid and and safety wise. And the safety could be your emotional safety because like they could leave their phone on the kitchen table and their mom or dad could see it and you're not going to want that. Mm-hmm. And the you know bad case scenario is also like kids break up or end relationships and share photos around or unfortunately sometimes kids you know, coerce each other or pressure each other to send photos and then might share them around. And that's the situation we especially want to make sure our kids understand that no one should be coercing them, whether it's to share, whether it's to go on a roller coaster they're scared of. I mean, like truly, like we have to understand and teach our kids that it's like, we don't want them to coerce their friends to do things. Sure. And the, by by asking our kids consent before we share just ordinary pictures of them, when they're in those early years, they get that there, it's okay to say no. That translates to if someone's asking me for a topless photo, I can say no. It really does. Just like we don't force our kids to hug people and because we understand a different way of thinking about bodily consent than we, maybe we grew up with. I, I just think it's really important that that translates. And we also want them to know if you do share a picture and you later are worried that it got out, I will still help you. Like we never want to give kids so much warning about something that they feel like if they do it in the sort of love and excitement of the moment and they're, you know, really into the idea in the moment because it just takes a second. And this is where the technology makes it really easy to do this. We want them to be able to come to us and say, hey, there's this picture out there of me. Like, what are my options now? Um, Yeah. And not just scare our kids. They won't be able to talk to us. Totally. Yeah. Not the fear of like, I'm going to be in trouble. Yeah. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking It. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're, Amy, more of a, we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, Mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, I There are two more like big social things for me. One is the like just dopamine reality of the likes and the, am I checking to see 
what does this mean for me and my value and my worth and that part of it that I think honestly adults get really wrapped up in and so 100% I mean as it, an author like it's so easy for me to check my Amazon reviews and be like totally really good I have this many and then I could look at another author who has twice as many or 10 times as many and feel like, bad oh, I'm failing yeah <laughs> and it's there's no end like whether it's likes or followers there's no but there's always going to be someone who has more Mm-hmm. there will always be someone who has more. And so the, the feeling that feels good goes away so quickly. Mm-hmm. Lasting self-esteem comes from walking the dog, helping your little brother, you know, right. helping your grandma, helping the neighbor shovel the snow, like helping at home, you know, putting things away, just feeling good, feeling mastery and feeling like you're helping in your family at whatever level is appropriate for the age that you're at. That's where kids get self-esteem that's lasting and sturdy. Whereas in the case of getting followers, and we can talk about that. Like I, I've talked with my kid about, yeah. you know, when my TEDx talk years ago got shared on Upworthy and suddenly it went from like, you know, a few views to a lot, a lot of views. And I was watching the numbers for a couple of days and it was like really exciting. And then I was like, a, there's still TED Talks out there that have a lot more views. So that's sure. like, if I'm going to put myself in that category, I'm going to feel really like I just don't measure up. And it just goes away after a minute. Like, it's just it's mm-hmm. like exciting for a minute, but it doesn't last. And so when we have kids that are chasing a following, or if they say, I want 100,000 followers or a million followers, we can ask some questions about it. Like, oh, well, what would that mean to you? Or what would be exciting to share with that many people? I don't think we want to just dismiss it. Like, oh, well, that's dumb. You don't want to be an influencer. Totally. You want a real job, even though you might be thinking that, you know, because there might, they might be an influencer, you know, right? Your kid might, might be really awesome on TikTok or whatever place, but it's important to think about also what pressures could that put on you? And especially for someone whose identity is evolving rapidly, which is kids, tweens, and teenagers, I think it's even more like the one thing I'll say about having an internet presence as a grown up is I can look at myself from five years ago and I still agree with what that lady said. You know, I might've sure. evolved or I might've gotten smarter about an issue, but I don't feel like I'm a whole different person. Right. Um, and I might even still be wearing the same sweater because for me, five <laughs> sure. years is like, well, that's like a blink of an eye, you know? <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. Versus but like when you're going 16 from to 11 21. to 16 or mm-hmm. nine to, you know, 14, mm-hmm. like those are huge changes. Sure. That makes sense. I like the conversation around like, what would that mean for you? Um, and for me, it was one of those like lived experiences that really was the lesson of like, oh yeah, every, let's say social goal that I've set, every time I reached it, I didn't feel different about myself, right? Like I didn't feel like, oh, now I've done enough. Now I am X, Y, and Z. It was always just a new goal post. And so for me, that became the eye opening. like, okay then it can't be about these external things. <laughs> like this has to come from inside, but it took like living and honestly hitting a bunch of my goals, my work goals, my whatever. And being like, oh yeah, it didn't do the thing I was hoping it would do. Right. Like I didn't get here and feel like, yep. Check Alyssa, you've achieved it. Here's success. <laughs> and 100%. Yeah. Whereas those like DM conversations, like if you can mm-hmm. get one person to be in a place where they can like sit next to their, you know, non-binary sib kid at Thanksgiving Mm -hmm. and, 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 and just use their chosen name and pronouns um, and just be with that. Like you have transformed, you Mm -hmm. know, 
a situation and made it a lot less uncomfortable and, and stigmatizing for someone, that's amazing. And I think to be in a place where we can do that kind of one-on-one work, you know, like if I've helped a few families check the grading app on their phone yeah. less frequently and therefore like undermined the relationship between the teacher, and the student, like made the whole triangle a little less stressful. Yeah. That's a win to me. Totally. I mean, of course, like I'd love to do that at scale and I'd love to see policy change. And there's this moment right now with the Surgeon General report and I'm being asked to talk about policy. And I'm like, I would love to be, you know, honestly, like helping states and sure. and, and school districts, you know, rethink some of these policies. Like, absolutely. Like I want to have impact at scale. But at least for me, that hasn't come from like more, you know, LinkedIn followers or whatever. I mean, Yes, follow me on Substack. Do you know follow me on Instagram? All the things. It's great. Totally. It's lovely. <laughs> but if that's not like that number ex- doesn't, you know, doesn't really change things. It's the person who writes me back. You know, like I might send yeah. a newsletter and get, you know, whatever thousands of people opening it and reading it. But the person who writes me back and says, I changed what I was thinking about posting where my kid was applying to college. And she was so relieved. And we talked about it. And it was good for our relationship. That to me is like so much more yeah. powerful than like totally because it's that whatever connection 60 people piece. retweeted me yeah, yeah exactly it's that connection piece it's the like I got to have a real conversation and I I love that like hanging out in my dms is actually something that genuinely feels it brings me joy way more than like honestly creating a post and sharing it and whatever happens with it happens I love the individual conversations because I like to connect with humans, right? And like hear about their life and not even just the like, oh, how did my work impact you? But just learn about other people. Um, my mom asked when I was younger, like, what do you want to be? What do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like, I want to be either a waitress or a cashier so I can just talk to people and learn about them. <laughs> um, and like, that still is something like that, something that fires me up and fills me up. And I, I, I've, was you were sharing was thinking about like, how do we talk about those, you know, in the same way that when we're texting our friends or people, we're not, our kids aren't hearing us sign off and say goodbye and all that. What does it look like to talk about those experiences with our kids in a genuine way? Or I, my husband asks Sage every day at the end of the day, they, or he talks about like things that he noticed that Sage did that were kinder that other people did for him that were kind. And I love this. It brings it back to like, that's one of the values in our family is kindness. And um, sometimes we're highlighting times where Sage walked away from something where he, instead of hitting or screaming, he walked away, right? And like, that's a kind choice. Um, and so sometimes it's like that. And other times it's that, yeah, you were helper making breakfast this morning and, or putting the cutting boards away when we were emptying the dishwasher. Um, And I'm wondering what does it look like to bring these conversations in so that we're not just doing them ourselves in isolation, but talking to kids about it. Mm -hmm. hundred percent. And I think helping them notice those things about themselves and notice then when they're older, like, how do you feel when you're on roadblocks and people do this or that? Or how do you feel when someone like messes up your creation on Minecraft? Or how do you welcome someone new into the Minecraft circle and help them figure it out? Or, um, how do you navigate when the group text is getting tricky? Or if you are scrolling Instagram or Snapchat, like what do you do if you notice it's making you feel bad? Or mm-hmm. is there something you can do to help yourself transition out of it as well? Because it can be, especially TikTok and things like that can be such a rabbit hole. 
for our time. And I think teenagers especially are really learning about how to prioritize their time and how to prioritize where they spend their mental energy. And they might notice this makes me feel bad and still be doing it. Like I think even as adults, again, like I might know that sitting around versus exercising, I'm not going to feel as good, but I might still choose to sit around because in the Mm -hmm. moment it's like, so then it's like, well, what can I do to build those habits? And how can I help myself? Is there like a little cue I can give myself to like, at least get up and walk around or to walk away from the scroll. Uh, And I think talking also with kids about how some of these things are designed, like how games are designed, for example, with the near miss phenomenon, just like, you know, Las Vegas casinos are designed with that. So you feel like you almost won and that's an illusion, but it's actually great to get into those design principles with kids, partly because a lot of them want to be game designers or to design social apps. So it's like, they're curious about that anyway. Sure. But it's also good because they can then feel a little bit of extra power. Like, oh, I I was really smart and walked away or I got, I let my time get away from me, but I'm not going to tomorrow. And I think that's all really, really helpful. We want to set kids up not to feel like they're dupes and they're disempowered, but at the same time, these apps are really strong and powerful and they're designed to get us where we're the most human. Like the like button gets us where we're super human, yeah. right? That's like, who doesn't want to be liked and seen and respect, you know, totally. regardless. Yeah. Even the fact that it's like a little heart that's called a like button, right? Like, I um, mean, yeah. I want hearts. I want likes. <laughs> Correct. I'll do. Yeah, and do, so it's not like do we don't like want to treat me. our kids like they're dumb because they want those things. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's like, no, that app is really done with research that understands our brains. And how can we also recognize the ways that we want to get those sort of like in-person hearts and hugs and love and, you know, and that's like that's petting your dog that's you know totally. seeing a friend and talking in person I love that you popped in there the like just asking them how do you feel when you're doing these things how do you feel during how do you feel after how do you feel five minutes after versus the next day after you know and helping them start to build awareness of those things that really do build self-esteem versus those temporary wins if you will um, mm-hmm. and I think there we're getting into, you know, the fifth part of emotional intelligence of extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation and um, how different those two things feel internally for us. That when we're tapping into intrinsic motivation, the way that it feels not just now, but tomorrow and the next day feels different than the way that extrinsic motivation feels now, but then tomorrow and the next day. Yeah. Yeah. I dig that. Oh my gosh. I I have 7 billion questions for you, but uh, out of respect for you and your time. And now I'm just like, I can't wait to get my hands on growing up in public. Um, Y'all run, don't walk. Devorah's book, Growing Up in Public is ready for you to snag. So go snag that wherever books are sold. Devorah, where can folks connect with you, learn more about your work, all that jazz? Definitely the Substack, Heitner, Substack.com, and Instagram is a fun place. Um, Substack is a little bit of a deeper dive into what I'm thinking and sharing in the moment. And my website, DevorahHeitner.com, also has some fun things that you can get along with getting a book right now, which is kind of fun. There's a couple like extra things you can get if you get the book at the moment. And you can also bring me to your community. And I do a lot of zooming in and flying out to school districts, to corporations. So if you know, like, Hey, there's a group of parents that really want this information and 
I also um, have a discussion guide for the book. So if there's like, if you're like, I need this, but I have no budget to fly in Devorah, you can lead the discussion and I'll just send you the questions. Just write to me and I'll send them to you. And then you can have a discussion because we're all thinking about this stuff. We're all thinking about how can we navigate this reputation stuff? How can we talk to our kids? How can we hopefully prevent, you know, mistakes where posts go wrong with kids, but also deal with them when, when they do happen. Yeah. Stuff happens. And I think that's, the biggest, biggest thing I've learned in the last five years of talking with kids and parents is we need to have the prevention plan of like preventing the thing, but we also need the kind of postvention of like, okay, but mistakes will be made and that's part of development and your kid yeah. will get in a fight with someone on Roblox or they will leave somebody out of a group text or they will feel totally. bad when they see somebody's post. So we need to be able to help them move forward and repair relationships and, and we don't want to teach kids that you know, navigating the digital world is this like high wire act. And if you fall off, you're broken and that's it. We yeah. need to actually teach kids that we do the best we can not to cause harm in this space. And when we mess up, this is how we repair. This is how we make it right. This is how we move forward. And we also need to give that grace to our friends who are also still learning. I love that so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And and just how do we create that trust relationship where they can turn to us when they do make those mistakes without fear of punishment or getting in trouble or whatever. Um, thank you. Thanks for writing this book because I need it. <laughs> I'm jazzed to have it. Uh, I will link to all the things in the blog post at voicesofyourvillage.com. So if you're driving or you're like me and often doing the dishes or something like that while you're listening to a podcast um, and weren't able to jot all the things down, you can go to voicesofyourvillage.com and all the links will be in um, Devorah's blog post. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. It's great to talk with you. Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the transcript at voicesofyourvillage.com. Did you know that we have a special community over on Instagram hanging out every day with more free content? Come join us at seed.and.so. Take a screenshot of you tuning in, share it on the gram, and tag seed.and.so to let me know your key takeaway. If you're digging this podcast, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We love collaborating with you to raise emotionally intelligent humans. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast.